been a very good day so far, and uh, um, I am uh, proud to be a dad of two kiddos, And uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't wish my dad a uh, happy Father's Day. He's preaching right now, probably, and, uh, and as well as my father-in-law, Ron, so Mark and Ron, happy Father's Day. And hopefully you have the opportunity to reach out to your dad at some point um, if you are able, and that's a possibility still, and say hello and uh, tell him thank you or just tell him whatever you need to tell him. So, well, uh, we do get to transition today to something new. So faces are everywhere in our world. It seems like everyone today has a face, right? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty odd. On the inside, everyone's face is pretty much the same, okay, on the inside of our face. Some bones, same amount of bones, same amount of muscles in, inside there. One of my favorite classes in college was A and K, anatomy and kinesiology, where I got to learn all the bones and the muscles and how they move and which muscles move to make us do whatever, you know, do this, or whatever Jackson was doing on that video. Good grief. <laughs> That, that was, uh, that's my son. <clears throat> and so uh, I got to memorize all those things. It was great. We have 14 facial bones. We have 43 muscles in our face. That's probably uh, up to debate, like, where they hook and what is actually a face muscle. But all those muscles serve a great, uh, they serve a great purpose, right? It takes about 12 muscles just to grin. So everybody do that. Just kind of grin. Don't smile. Grin. Because to smile and to do it right, it takes all 43 muscles in your face. You get that eyebrows up and you get your nose cream and you smile big, it takes all 43 muscles. So they're important. It takes less muscles to frown, um, which, which probably we are just trying to be more efficient when we frown. So um, let's, let's use our whole face today as we... Uh, as we use those. Um, the outside features of our face are different, right? And uh, they're similar. We all have very similar um, things, but they look different. Pretty much everyone has a nose and a mouth and eyes and eyebrows, the whole thing. But those features look different on everyone, don't they? And we're proud of some of those features. We're not so proud of some of our own features. That's the way it goes. But we're blessed with the face that we have, right? And some of those, you know, we have bigger or smaller noses. Maybe we have uh, bigger or smaller mouths, whatever the case is. And then there's some of those extra features on faces that not everybody has, but some of us do, right? Like dimples. Like when you use those muscles, you get those dimples. Or you go to the Kurt Douglas route with the big dimple in the middle, right? Um, mustaches, beards. Some of us have scars on our faces that we didn't have when we were born, but now we do. So they all help characterize our face. And here's the thing. Uh, you know, faces aren't just for people, right? There's a face on your clock. There's uh, mountains and buildings. The sides of those are faces. And actually, in some mountains, a face of a mountain has faces carved into those mountains. So it's a face of a face. And um, in math, the surface of a 3D figure is, a, is called a face. I had to look that up because I don't do math. But uh, there, there's even fake faces, right? During Halloween, we wear those masks. And in the case of human interaction, the most, in, uh, most effective way to communicate and to interact is to get your face 
in front of somebody else's face, right? The best way to communicate with people is face-to-face. And um, face-to-face interactions, they have some deep benefits. And we receive communication in lots of different ways, but face-to-face is the best way. And it's, it's how we share the most depth. Think about it. Um, in the COVID time that we had, on March 13th, 2020, till June the 21st, 2020, literally three years ago today, would have been this week, on Father's Day, we did not have church in this room. We were not face-to-face. We had no interaction face-to-face. And we saw the importance of that uh, in a lot of our lives. And, I mean, how different was that? It was weird, wasn't it? To be on this end and to see, you know, we, we did a full-blown, we had worship time, we had a message, and there was nobody here. And it was weird. And I'm sure it was weird for you to have a worship time on your couch or wherever you were, right? So um, face-to-face interaction is how we best receive communication most of the time. And so here's a couple of benefits, right, to face-to-face, as opposed to maybe texting, messaging people, even calling them on the phone. That's a good way, but we, when we are not, when we're face-to-face, we get to interpret the visual cues, the nonverbals, right, that people like body language and things like that. And if I make a remark uh, and give you a little wink like that, I don't know how many muscles that was, but it was a good one. If I give you a wink after a remark, you're going to think, oh, that's, that's like he's, that's sarcasm, it's silly, whatever the case is. But if I, if, if, even if I give it an emoji and you're texting, reading a text, it's not the same thing. You can read it as the way it's stated. So there's no uh, nonverbal cues to interpret. Um, face-to-face interaction helps us with uh, building relationships. We talked a lot about that over the past few weeks. Um, we talked about the table, and all of that is facing in. You're looking face-to-face at people. Well, face-to-face interaction helps us engage in purposeful talk, right? It's, it's a little more in-depth, um, and it eliminates those obstacles of omission. Like, we get and see and hear everything, right? And, and we get to interpret the actual words being used. So when you text somebody, for example... Um, I don't know what kind of inflection you're using. Are you mad? Maybe we read it as you're mad and you're not. It's just the way it goes. So face-to-face interaction is super important. And having those interactions, um, they have the ability to move us, right, in a much bigger way than interaction when we're apart. Again, we saw that during uh, the time when we weren't able to meet. And and the same is true when we come face-to-face with God, that the impact it is massive. And face-to-face interaction with God is life-changing. You know, we think about the people that we shared about um, over the last five weeks when we talked about being at the table. Uh, it changed people's lives. Every time someone was face-to-face with Jesus, it changed their life. And it changed their direction. And face-to-face with God, it can actually be name-changing. A lot of times in Scripture, we read about uh, Jacob. His name was changed. Peter, his name was changed. Uh, Paul, he was Saul, then he was Paul. Um, And so in all these cases, a face-to-face interaction, God changed not just their hearts, but their identity and who they were. And at times, we don't get to see, we don't understand what God sees in us until we encounter him face-to-face. 
And so there's some, some people in Scripture that had impactful face-to-face encounters with God or God in a body. We call him Jesus, right? And so um, that was one of the purposes for Jesus to come was to be face-to-face with his creation. And it was all those times are life-altering for those people. Today, as we start something new, we're calling it face-to-face. Spoiler alert, you probably figured that out, right? Um, we, have, uh, we see a lot of the same issues in Scripture and how God worked through people and the things that they were dealing with. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some things that we all deal with. At, at some point in our life, in our walk, in, in our discipleship track, we deal with these things about uh, coming face-to-face with our, sin, our shame and our, our guilt from whatever, our past life. Uh, we come face-to-face with overcoming our bad decisions, right? You know that you were a part of 100% of every bad decision that you made, and uh, we have to own that. And so we don't make great decisions all the time, guilty, right? And so we have to deal with those things. We need to come face. We'll come face to face with lifelong pain because some of us experience that, whether it be physical or emotional, whatever the case is. We'll come face to face with what it takes to go the extra mile in being faithful to God and in um, being coming face to face with hearing the voice of God and his direction in our lives. So, for example, today, what happens when we come face to face with our sin and our guilt from our past. Today, we look at a person that came face-to-face with Jesus, literally. Uh, And actually, this this encounter should not have even happened because Jesus should not have been where he was, but he was there. And honestly, the woman that Jesus uh, came face-to-face with did everything she could to eliminate this interaction as well. You can find this encounter in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. So if you want to find that in your scripture, um, please do. Uh, John, chapter 4. But we find a woman, and there's no name. She's just woman at the well. And uh, Jesus comes face to face with her. A Jewish teacher that had no business being at that particular well in that particular town in that particular country and here's, uh, here's the beginning of their encounter. We're just going to kind of walk through this face-to-face interaction, starting in verse 3. So he, meaning Jesus, and all his disciples, <clears throat> he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Tired from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Well, the woman at the well and Jesus are going to have a very uncommon meeting. From Jesus' end, in, in his position, Jesus decided to take a trip home. He's headed up to Galilee, okay? And so um, uh, if, if you look at the map, I think we have up here... Uh, Jesus was down in Judea. It's kind of small, but you can see down here in Judea in the red. And I don't have a laser pointer. Um, this thing failed me. Um, but, uh, but we have the mouse. You see Judea, and he was going up to Galilee, which is where his hometown was in Nazareth. And you can see what's in between, Samaria. 
not some area. Samaria was right in the middle. And so Jesus was headed up north to go home. And in those times, he had two choices. As a Jew, as a Jewish person, he had two choices. He could walk through Samaria or he could walk around Samaria. And most people would walk around. Even though it took an extra day to do that, there were some very strong feelings between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, right? And so this was a very racially charged issue. Um, The feelings from the Jews and the the Samaritans were mutual. They both hated each other a lot, okay? And so um, Jewish people, instead of setting foot, even setting foot in that country, they would walk all the way around it, all the way up the, the River Jordan, and they would get around it uh, but, and not set foot in Samaria. And uh, they would, it would usually take an extra day. But in this case, Jesus is headed home, and he decides to go through Samaria. And on the trip, it's about noon. Uh, John shares that little detail with us. It's noon, and Jesus and his disciples come up to Jacob's well. And out, just outside of the town of Sychar. And this face-to-face meeting with Jesus, uh, it happens uh, with the woman. And in the woman's case, the woman at the well, she's an outcast. She's a social pariah. She is, her reputation precedes her when she comes into the room. And she was, um, she was this way. She earned that reputation because of a series of the decisions that she had made in her life. And because of a series of relationships that she chose to engage in throughout the course of her adult life. And this this time, in those days, the water source, Jacob's well, was typically outside of town uh, along one of the main roads. So people that were walking by could use it. And then the the common practice was that uh, they would come, uh, the women would come with their uh, containers in the morning and in the evening. So they'd have water all day, and then they'd have water at nighttime for whatever needs they, they had. And it was common practice for them to come early, cooler, right? And they would have the water longer. And, and so they would, have, um, <clears throat> uh, this, they, they would have had water available for them all day long that way. It, it's the source of life. And, you know, in those days, disease and everything... If water sat still for too long, it would become toxic, right? So we wanted to make sure that we were, had fresh water all the time. And this woman at the well, she was there at noon, not the common time. It's not the most convenient time. Just think about how hot it is. And carrying water is not easy. Get a five-gallon bucket and carry around some water. It's not easy at all. And they probably didn't even have those handles on them uh, when they were carrying their water. And it was a time that no one would be there, though, and she knew that. And so um, that's why she came at noon, because she didn't want to be seen. She wanted no face-to-face interaction. And Jesus and this woman, they come face-to-face, as we read on in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How do you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that you ask for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, 
You have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can I get this living water? See how fast she turns? Like, oh, that just dawned on me. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for it himself as did his also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will begin to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to them, said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't get thirsty, and I have to keep coming out here to draw water. And Jesus said, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. And Jesus told her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband either. What you have just said is quite true. So Jesus and this woman begin their in their face-to-face encounter with a little bit of sass, right, from the, from the lady. Um, she's like, well, Jesus just has a request. And uh, he's at the well taking a nap because he's tired from the walk. The, the disciples went in to Saqqar to, to the quick trip to get some snacks and, um, and get, you know, get some supplies. And Jesus stayed there, and, and he sent his disciples out, and the woman comes up to the well. Chances are, if the disciples were still there, she would have just turned around and gone without water. So Jesus knew what he was doing. And the woman comes up to the well, seeing Jesus probably worried her a little bit, puts her in a defensive mood, and Jesus asked her for a very simple favor. Can you get me a drink? Seems harmless enough. And it's the simplest of requests. It's noon. He's thirsty. Makes sense. And she has the proper tools to draw water. Jesus did not. And then comes the little defensiveness, maybe a little bit of sass. And she says, are you talking to me? Who are you? I mean, you're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Both of those things in that culture would have made things terribly inappropriate for Jesus to even speak to her. A, A single man and a single woman in the same place with no supervision, a Jewish man, a Samaritan woman, it just did not work out. And it would have looked really bad. And they go on to have this conversation. And we find out why the woman's there, right? She's there at noon because she made some bad decisions. And the guilt in her heart has affected her daily habits. It didn't just change her reputation. It changes the way that she actually lives. The reputation from her decisions have dictated her pattern of life, right? The goal in her life now is to avoid face-to-face. We're not doing this. I don't want to see anybody and listen to them judge me and talk down to me. Another goal is to avoid their judgment and opinions, right? The goal is to foster her aloneness. She wanted to sit in her guilt and her shame and just be alone by herself in that. And Jesus identifies her bad decisions without her even telling, right? He says, go get your husband. He's like, well, I don't have a husband. He he goes, you're right. You have five. And the one that you're with now is not your husband. So he, um, when he tells her this, but he doesn't do it in a judging way. He doesn't judge her decisions. He just states the truth. I know who you are. That's what he's telling her. I know you. And what you've done and who you and how you've lived. 
And he didn't talk down to her. He didn't make her the villain in this little encounter. He acknowledges her sin, and he loved her anyway. And he reveals to her that he's the Messiah. Later on, we didn't read this part, but she starts talking about the Messiah, and she knows about that, that whole idea of the Savior that's coming. And in verse 25, he says, uh, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. She was aware of what's, what's to come. And Jesus' response was, I am he. I'm the one you're talking about. And in this face-to-face encounter has an impact that would change her entire life. Because the woman ends up giving her life over to God because of the encounter that she has with Jesus. And then, and then this is what we kind of, um, fail at sometimes. When something great happens in our life because of Jesus Christ, this is what she did. She went and told everybody. We fail on that sometimes. We don't share what, the way we should share sometimes. But she went back to town and told everybody what was going on. Everyone uh, in the town, it says in, in later on in the passage, that, that they all came out to the well to see what was going on. In the meantime, the disciples, this is a little, uh, John's writing this, and it's very self-telling, honestly. The disciples, they're coming back from getting snacks, you know, loaded up with groceries, and how many people did they bring back? None. It was just the disciples. They hung out with Jesus the, 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 and saw him impact lives Every time that they encountered somebody, when Jesus was face-to-face with them. But how many people did they bring back? Honestly, they had an encounter with somebody. They went to town. They just didn't take the food off of someone's table. So they could have said, hey, uh, you look like you're from out of town. Right. We're here. Jesus is out at the well. Do you want to come and meet him? That's all he could have said. They probably would have come because Jesus' reputation preceded him as well. But they didn't bring anybody back. This woman who had a face-to-face encounter for like 20 minutes runs back and says, come and listen to this man who told me everything I've ever done in my life. And she brings back the whole town. And because of her testimony, because she was willing, and this goes back to what we've talked about for weeks, being a disciple that makes disciples. It says in verse 39 that... um, Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. That's what happens when we share the great things that God's done in our life. But those things happen only because of a face-to-face encounter. So here's the thing with this encounter. You know, Jesus was well aware of the woman and why she was there at the well at noon. She's carrying a water jug, but she was carrying way more than a water jug out to that well. She was carrying a burden of guilt that followed her everywhere just to walk through the town and hear people whisper and talk and maybe not even whisper, right? Because she's carrying this, and she carries out to that well a broken reputation that was present if she was ever seen in in public. You ever deal with that? the way that we stand out, and the things that you might have done in the past. She's carrying a burden of past decisions that were failures. And, and uh, she's, um, 
She's keeping, it, those, those things from her past were keeping her from moving forward in her life. Like we said, it changed how she even acted during the day in the, in the pattern of life that she lived. On the, on the contrary, Jesus carried absolutely nothing to the well. And the woman points this out. She says, you don't even have a cup to drink from. You asked me for a drink. You don't even have a cup to drink from. And, and most importantly, though, he didn't carry. What Jesus was not carrying was a load of judgment and, um, and his opinions on the woman's lifestyle. We know, I mean, Jesus disapproved, right? We understand that because sin is sin, and God hates sin. So Jesus knew what was going on, but he didn't carry a load of judgment. He didn't carry a bunch of harsh words uh, with the intent to make her feel even worse and beat her down. What did Jesus do? He acknowledges a few things with this woman and as he engaged her. He acknowledges her presence. Simple enough. She was there. She's arrived, right? When he, when he was at the well and the, when the woman arrived, Jesus initiated the conversation. She, he, he acknowledged that she was even present. Even though culture dictated that he not even speak to her, right? Jesus speaks to her. And this acknowledgement alone immediately draws her in. At the beginning, for the wrong reason. Like, why are you talking to me? I'm a woman and a Samaritan. You're a Jewish person. We don't do that. We don't mix. We don't, we, don't con- we don't have talks. It's not the way. And then he acknowledges her sin, the elephant in the room. Why are you here at noon, right? Well, here's the reason. He acknowledges immediately. And, and um, the sole reason for her presence in, in that time. And Jesus told her about her lifestyle. Again, I know you. That's what he's saying. I know who you are, what you've done, and, um, and he acknowledges this sin. And again, the woman was drawn even closer. Holy cow, you must be a prophet to know this, right? How did you know? You, you, you must know who I am, right? You don't live around here, but maybe... No, Jesus told her about her sin, five previous women, men, one current man, still all of them, not her husband, and immediately... He acknowledged her heart was ready to change. She was, she was searching for more than water at that well. She was searching for something that was a terrible void in her life. And so after Jesus points out what she had done, immediately he, he, you know, he said, you, you got five husbands, you're not with... And then immediately, what does he do? He dives into this convicting, you know... Um, like four-point sermon about how awful she was and how she needs to repent right now. And no, that's not what he did, right? That wasn't, that wasn't good. Uh, you know, you're not, he didn't say, you're not good enough for all these people. You're, too, you're not good enough for God to even love. That's not what he does. He says, he, Jesus just deals with her sin. But it was all about her future, not her past. He was gentle. He wasn't aggressive and threw, uh, threw a Bible at her and said, you need to read this and memorize it and change everything in your life first. And that's what he did. He was gentle. He was direct, but he was kind. That can go a long, long way in our world. 
direct. Lots of people are direct. Not a lot of people are kind. We can get a long ways with that. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? It, it's, what, it's part of that kindness that comes out of us, even though we are direct and we tell the truth. It, it comes out of us through the Spirit, not just because that's our opinion and we want to knock somebody over with it. He spoke the truth to her in love. Without, con- without being condescending, without um, drawing too much attention to her guilt and her shame that was in her heart because he was well aware of what she was feeling. Then, after Jesus acknowledges all this, the woman acknowledges something. She acknowledges her sin. Told Jesus, well, you must be a prophet, right? After hearing about all the men that she's been with. And she didn't run away from it. Again, because Jesus had drawn her in with the way that he acted towards her. And she was well aware of her guilt, but she didn't run away. She was aware of the Messiah that was to come. She's got a background in church. She probably heard it in Sunday schools. They studied the the Torah at that point. They knew the law and the prophets, and it spoke of this person, this Messiah that was coming to be the Savior of the world. She knew about that, even though she was a Samaritan, even though she had five, six different men that she had been with, she knew She probably even knew where to find it in the scriptures. That's true about lots of people in our life. There's a lot of people that aren't in these chairs today because they were once, and they know all the answers. They hear, they they know the stories, but the application to their life, it just hasn't stuck. Or it was used in a different way to harm them, and they've run away. And for some, sometimes I, I could say, I don't blame you. Because there are people that, are, that, that claim religion. That's religion, right? That's not Christianity. That's religion. There are people that claim in religion things that are awful. And they're hurtful. And that's not the gospel of love that we've been given. So she acknowledges her sin. And she acknowledges her need to surrender. Jesus gave her the insight about who he was, the I am he, claiming to be the Messiah, and her heart was changed. And then she shared with her whole world that uh, uh, the town that she lived in, and then they surrendered too. So today, my question is this, do you carry a burden of guilt and shame from your past? Because you've made some bad decisions, maybe. Who's made a bad decision here? Yeah, come on now. Group participation's awesome. I got two hands up, right? It's the way it works. But because you have past sin that's hurt others, it's hurt you. And that hurt has been harbored in your heart for a long time. And you think, well, that's what defines me, right? That, that's who I am. Just like that woman, that, that she thought that her actions defined her. And you think, you know, um, this, this, this is how other people define me. And then you begin to believe it too. And you define yourself as that way. And that's how you think God defines you. But it's, that's not the case. Because here's something comfort, comforting for all of us. Everyone here has had the same type of guilt and shame. Maybe not the six husbands thing. I get that. But you have the same kind of guilt and shame. Maybe, maybe you still do. Because here's the reason. All have sinned. That's the way it works. 
No one is, is exempt. We've all sinned, and everyone sits in the same guilt from the fallout of sin. Now, we might, get, uh, we might deal with it all in a different way, right? Some people pray, uh, pray about it. That's great. Some people drink, right? Some people choose other relationships to, to harbor. There's, people deal with their guilt and their shame in much different ways. But no one is exempt from sinning and the fallout that that sin causes. And it's important for us today to come face to face with that guilt and shame. Acknowledge why it's there. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that there's restoration available right now. And, and acknowledge that God is not up in heaven keeping a scoreboard of all the things that you've done. It, does, it doesn't matter how many, because one is enough to make you a sinner. And Jesus died for every one of them. And we have to acknowledge that surrender is the answer. And give that sin and guilt and shame to God. And surrender to him and allow him to change our hearts and change your identity. The woman was hoping to be invisible, right? To never encounter anyone because she knew that people, what they thought about her, and that, uh, that we have this opportunity in our lives to not be those people, to not point out the, the sins and things like that of others, and to react instead like Jesus did, with the grace and the love, knowing that we are no different but we've accepted and repented of what we've done. But she came face to face with her guilt and her shameful past, and she surrendered her life. And we all have the same things going on. We have to face it with a surrender that Je- and surrender it all to Jesus and allow him to forgive us because he already has. It's just out there. It's a standing invitation to come. So maybe you have something that you need to come face-to-face with right now. And as we wrap up, I know we're a little over, but we're going to take 38 seconds. We've done this in the past. We're going to take 38 seconds, and uh, we're just going to wrap things up today and ask just you and God. Have a little conversation right where you are. If you would like to come and kneel right here and come face-to-face with your guilt and shame here or in your seats, Whatever the case is, the most important thing is that you do it, that you ask God, what do I need to do? Here it is. Here's my life. Take it. Because that's, that's what the woman ended up doing. And we're just going to take these 38 seconds. I still have no idea why it's that. When I was a kid's pastor, we would do this. Um, it was probably twofold. One, I wanted them to learn what it was like to, to have a responsive time with God. Just you and God. And the other part was just to get them to sit still for 38 seconds, right? Kids don't do that very often. So I just want you to sit up straight, relax yourself, close your eyes. We're going to take 38 seconds to um, just have an opportunity to walk away from your guilt and your shame and to allow God to forgive you and allow God to change your heart immediately. So let's, let's take 38 seconds and pray, and then I'll close.
Heavenly Father, we're, we're humbled by your presence today. And we know that you are a good father to us. In, in a world where the father relationships can fail us, our human fathers, no matter who they are, they may be the greatest dad in the world, but they're going to fail us at some time. But Lord, you never do that. You never fail us. You're always with us. Today, we just offer our guilt and our shame from things of the past. We don't want our future to look that way anymore. We don't want to worry about our reputation and the way people see us and define us. We want to be viewed in the way that you define us as a child of God. And Father God, we just... uh, we know that there's, there's big things and small things in our life that we have to deal with where they become and they swell and they grow and they overtake us. And they begin to change our lifestyle patterns to where we even just go to the well at noon just so people don't see us. And Father God, we know that you see us and you know our hearts. Just like you, uh, you spoke to the woman without her saying a thing, to tell, tell us that you know who we are. And Lord, we surrender those things today. Father, go with us this week as we represent you in the best way possible, that we are a reflection of you and your church, you know, and that we rely on each other, that we pray for each other, and that we reach out to each other. Lord, help us to have a great week. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Well, have a great day.